0: The other night, I was having dinner with my partner, and um, I mentioned something about being middle-aged. And he said, you're not (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged. And I said, what do you mean? I'm middle-aged. He says, well, let's say, like, generously, you live to be 90. He says, the first 30 years, you're young, middle 30 years, middle-aged, and the last 30 years, you're old. And you're, well, I'll give you a few more months, he said. I I, I turned 60 in February. And um, I said, well, what about you then? What are you? Because he turned 60 like six months ago. I said, what are you? He said, I'm young, old. (laughs) And I said, well, then I can be old, middle-aged. And then I said, wait a moment. That doesn't sound good. I want to be young, old. (laughs) Anyway, this is an example of delusion, (laughs) which is um, what we're going to talk about tonight. (laughs) And it really is one of the great delusions, isn't it, that we have as human beings is that we we really don't grok that we're going to get old. Like I was sitting there during the conversation, I was like, "Yeah, in a few months I'm going to be 60." I'm like, "How the hell did that happen?" <laughs> and I had that thought regularly. It's not—it's not just every once in a while. It's like, "Wait a moment. The last time I remember, I was in my 30s. How did this happen?" Hmm. Well, denial is not just a river in Egypt, as they say. <laughs> So that's part of delusion. And delusion really messes with your mind um, because the the fact of delusion is you don't know that you're deluded when you're deluded. It's like a real mind-bender. Somebody once said to Ajahn Chah, I can observe desire and aversion in my mind, but it's hard to observe delusion. And he said, you're riding on a horse and asking where the horse is, (laughs) like it's present all the time. So it's a large subject. It's impossible to exhaust it, but tonight we'll just share some thoughts on it. So we often talk about the three roots of suffering, aversion, grasping, and delusion. And we talk a lot about um, grasping and aversion, and we don't talk as much. Well, you could say we don't talk as much about delusion directly. However, that's also the only thing we've been talking about. But but we don't take it as a category and talk about it too much. So tonight I'm going to do that. So what do we mean by delusion in Buddhism? So the word is moha. And it means um, not seeing things clearly, not seeing things as they are. Specifically, not seeing the nature of reality or the nature of life or how life is. So it's um, living in illusion, distorted perceptions about how life is. So you could say it's fundamental ignorance about reality. And it's related to the mind that is cloudy or muddy, can't see clearly. So what it means is that when delusion is present, we can't pay an attention in a way that gives rise to clear seeing and wisdom. And it's a trickster. Delusion is a trickster. Sometimes um, we have the uh, personification of delusion in the figure of Mara, the um, being that likes to come and trick especially meditators um, with reasoning and doubt to make them um, not see clearly in theravada buddhism not in all um, branches of buddhism but in theravada buddhism this word is pretty synonymous with avijja, which is ignorance so delusion and ignorance in theravada buddhism we often use those words interchangeably So the failure to see, the failure to know, it's sometimes depicted as a person who has a blindfold on so they can't see, or it's like trying to see with cataracts, or like fog on a lake, sometimes um, described as confusion and bewilderment. And there's a couple of major ways that delusion can present. Uh, One is just this blunt unawareness or not seeing of facts, like my not seeing that I'm getting older, or or that common um, kind of unawareness of facts, like denial, kind of like denial. And then there's another way that's this cognitive or uh, perceptual distortion of reality or distortion of the truth. And I'm going to touch on both of these. Either way, delusion has this um, quality of anesthetizing us. We live in imaginary worlds. We live in uh, made-up worlds that that are meant for to us to be a little bit more protected, to be kind of like shielded from the truth of the way things are. We see what we want to see. And so delusion is kind of one of the, uh, I, I call it one of the kind of control strategies that we have for... Um, dealing with this world these major control strategies being grasping aversion and delusion they're all ways that we try to um pretty much make the world be the way we want it to be not the way it is (laughs) The Buddha said that one of the signs of wisdom is seeing our own ignorance or our own foolishness. There's um, a quote from Soko Morinaga in a book called *Novice to Master. He says, if I were to sum up the past 40 years of my life, the time since I became a monk, I would have to say that it has been an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. (laughs) That's wisdom. That's how we develop wisdom. We see where we're deluded. We see where we're ignorant or where we're not seeing or not knowing. So it's actually a good way to spend the monk years. (laughs) A good way to spend our retreat. So the denial form of of delusion is a kind of blocking out or resisting the truth of, of our experience. And often what we might notice, and one way we might notice this on retreat, is kind of, you could say, the blocking out of um, a whole wide range of unwholesome mind states that we would like not to see. So, for example, I came to meditation. I thought I was pretty together. I was... Doing okay <laughs> had things kind of figured out, and um, after uh, not that long a period of time i was actually, I was shocked at what I saw in my own um, heart and mind. I had been pretty kind of wrapped up tight emotionally could you you could say pretty kept those emotions under control and um, that was kind of one of my my strategies of getting to adulthood. And I remember I came in at one point, and and did I tell you guys, I think I might have told you guys about this interview with um, Joseph where I was just like, and I'm feeling sad and angry and fearful and panicked and lonely. And he's like, what's the problem? <laughs> and I was like, oh. You know, it's like I had been so used to kind of like trying to keep down all the... Um, the emotions, because I, I, I didn't want them to be there. I didn't want them to be part of life. And so we come to retreat, and these places that we, like, kept down, they pop out. People say things such as, I never used to be an angry person. Now I'm angry all the time. They're like, great. <laughs> You weren't, you just didn't know that there was anger present, right? It's actually a relief. We don't always immediately recognize that we we can, um, you know, first of all, it's kind of like, oh boy, bad news, like I didn't sign up for this, but trying to repress or keep down our experience takes a lot of energy and when we start to allow things to flow more both the joy and the sorrow the pleasure and the pain the anger and the happiness like all of it um, we release a lot of that energy that's used to to hold it down and if we can learn not to take it personally, so often we start out, we take it personally, like, oh, this is me now, this is who I am, I'm an angry person, I'm a fearful person, or I'm a, or I'm a person full of lust, or whatever it is. Um, and then we might kind of beat ourselves up for that, but we can learn to um, allow it to rise, <laughs> allow it to be, allow it to pass away, and to see that it's just life. It's life manifesting. Like another way that I noticed this in my own practice is I started to notice that I had a lot of mean thoughts. And I hadn't known that I had mean thoughts. <laughs> or not didn't know it, really know it. And so I started to notice, like, wow, I have a lot of mean thoughts. And at first I took them really personally. And then after a while I'd be like, oh, there's another mean thought. Oh, well. It's like... And then, when I didn't take them personally, it was it, it didn't matter. just it's arising and passing away. so we release a lot of energy. They say that um denial for denial to work it's the brain creates these new um creates a way of blocking off unwanted energy or unwanted information, and it creates new neural pathways that um, make unpleasant thoughts and emotions like inaccessible. And in that way, it's like we're putting up all these walls (laughs) in our hearts and our minds. We're narrowing um, the heart and the mind. And again, like I said, it takes energy to repress things. And you've seen the meditation. It just starts to dissolve those walls. We start to see what was unconscious within us becomes conscious. And this is great, because we're more in touch with, the, with reality, with the way life is. So, so, so denial, like uh, turning away from the truth or finding ways to um, avoid seeing the truth. And then the other um, fundamental kind of ignorance is not seeing life as it is due to um, distorted perception, cognitive and perceptual distortion, you could say. So the fundamental thing, by now I think you know the fundamental truths of life that, that we want to understand are um, aniccanatta and dukkha, so impermanence, suffering, and not-self. And what happens is that the way that perception works, we only see the surface of things. We don't see deeply, and so on the surface of things, we, we see permanence, we see self, we see gratification. And what we do with meditation is, is learn how to see more deeply so that we can be more in line, aligned with the truth. So these distortions of the truth actually also create uneasiness, they create discord within us, because they're not in alignment with the way things are. So delusion is a certain kind of, um, you could say it's a kind of suffering in that kind of uneasiness, the disharmony, the kind of edginess of, of keeping the truth at bay. And what we find with our practice is that it's in truth we can rest. And the greater that we open up our vision and open up our hearts and our minds to the way things are, the more we can rest. So what perpetuates delusion? Delusion. First of all, disconnect. All the ways that we distract ourselves, that we um, uh, um, live in in our fantasy worlds, all the ways that we disconnect from from being here now, this perpetuates uh, delusion. I mean, we only have to watch our minds for five minutes to understand that there's a lot of delusion, a, a, a lot of perpetuating of delusion in our thoughts. I mean, we make up some crazy stuff. Five minutes is enough to know that. (laughs) And so, so, yeah, we live in these worlds where we make up all this stuff, and it's disconnected from reality. It perpetuates delusion. So mindfulness helping us to land here, and now counteracts that. It gives us a chance to counteract delusion and develop wisdom. That's what we're doing here. We keep coming back over and over again to what's happening here and now. What's the truth of this moment? To develop wisdom. Another thing that perpetuates delusion is tricks of perception. So you can't really talk about delusion without talking about perception. And I talked about this a little bit um, a couple weeks ago in my Karmic Knots uh, talk, and I'd love to go into it again in perhaps a little more detail. We tend to take our perceptions as truth. We tend to really believe our perceptions, and, and we have to really um, take a look at that. So the way perception works is there is sense contact, and then the mind goes through. You could say it's files. It's file drawers in the mind, <laughs> and it names what's happening. It decides what it is. So let's say there's a, a sound, sense contact, a sound. The mind the um, mind goes through its little files, and it'd be like, oh, okay, uh, that's the heating system. And then it uh, interprets what is seen or heard, tasted, smelled, thought. So it uses memories and um, associations, conditioned perceptual categories to... Uh, interpret it so we know more about what it is. And this interpretation is just a best guess. It's based on prior experience. It's kind of like the the mind sees a bunch of dots and then connects a line and makes a picture out of it. So it takes a few reference points and then creates what it believes is the truth. I'll give you an example. So one day I was sitting outside. Um, near a marsh. I I like to walk in the woods and sit, just sit different places in the woods and meditate. So I was sitting by this marsh, and it was a very windy day. I think it was like after a hurricane had passed nearby or something, but it was really windy. And I'm sitting there uh, kind of just being quiet and watching my mind and watching what was going on. And so then I hear this noise behind me. It's like kind of a crackling noise. And my, my, I was really quiet, so I watched my mind, and it really was like watching it like flip through a bunch of charts. It was like, this all happened very quickly. It was like, is it that? No, that? No, that? No. It was like, no, 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 no. And then finally it landed. It said, oh, must be water going over rocks. That was like the best guess it could come up with. And then in the meantime, like during that second this huge tree fell down behind me, like two or three feet away. You're lucky I'm here. <laughs> and um, that was the sound. The sound was the tree, like, starting to break, right? And um, But my mind didn't really have a file for that. It wasn't really <laughs> in there. It now has a file for that. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> But but so it just guessed, right? It was like, oh, must be water going over rocks. And later, as I was walking home, I was sitting on a bridge. There's a little bridge over this creek. And um, I was actually laying down on the bridge looking up at the, it's, wait, nobody walks. Hardly nobody walks there. And so I was laying on the bridge, and I was kind of looking up at the trees. And um, something touches my hand. And my first thought, flip, 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 flip through the chart, wild animal, <laughs> but then I opened my eyes and it was just a neighbor's dog so perception is doing this all the time it's making up um, best guesses about reality and it fills in a lot of um, information makes a lot of assumptions and so the way perception works it goes from like bare attention to greater and greater conceptualization so I think you can actually see this maybe in little kids' language I'm not sure, but so you know like I'm sitting there and you see this like orange, irregular shape moving downwards that's bare perception, right, and then the mind goes, Oh that's a leaf, and then the mind goes, Oh, that's a maple leaf, and then it, well, if it keeps going, it'd be like, Wow, I wonder how many months till maple sugaring season starts. <laughs> I like maple sugar or whatever it it keeps uh you know it makes some um, Pancha makes proliferation. But as it does this, as it, it, it um, conceptualizes, it kind of moves further and further from reality and more into uh, constructed reality. And then, once we have the constructed reality, we quit pay- paying attention. The mind likes to save energy. It doesn't um, want to work any harder than it has to. So mostly we stop paying attention. So when, a, when an object seems familiar to us, it's actually um, that we've stopped paying attention, that we're probably more paying attention to the concept rather than the reality. Like breath, right? After a while, this happens to all of us. If your breath is your anchor after a while, like, oh, well, I've seen, you know, I've seen this. See, I know what a breath is, and um, we start to kind of disconnect. We're not so interested, right? But actually, each breath is different. So the concept makes it kind of a generalization, while, while the experience itself is fresh and new and always different. i had an interesting experience that kind of showed me how 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 um how with conceptualization we can stop seeing one time many years ago i I worked um as a therapist and i speak spanish so i worked with a lot of people who are um spanish-speaking puerto ricans and uh one woman i was talking with she was new in the country uh had only been here a few months and um She's talking with me, and she is looking out the window, and she says, Rebecca, there's this gorgeous bird out there. She said it in Spanish, but anyway, I'll say it in English for you guys. She said, um, there's this beautiful bird out there. I love birds, and so I was like, oh, really? So I went to the window to look out, and I turned to her, and I said, oh, it's just a blue jay. <laughs> and then I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Like, she saw the bird. I did not see the bird. I saw my concept of the bird. So for her, it was fresh and new, and for me, it had in some ways died. I didn't see the bird. And ever since then, it's like every time I see a blue jay, I really look at it. They're beautiful birds. So as we move into conceptualization and and we move and mental proliferation, we move further and further from the way things are to the way we construct them to be. And this makes, like, you could say, these neural pathways and these neural grooves in the mind where we start to have a lot of views and opinions and assumptions about the world and about ourselves and about life. And as they get repeated over and over again, they become ossified. And then the way the assumptions that we have start to influence what we see. And so we see what agrees with our views because the mind doesn't like cognitive dissonance, it likes what agrees. There's a story from um, the ancient, uh, I think, Confucian philosopher Lao Tzu. Once upon a time, a man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke like a thief. But the man found his axe while digging in the valley, and the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. So if we believe things to be a certain way, it distorts our perception. We see what... can. Firms or what um uh, agrees with our views. So with meditation, we're trying to bring in some flexibility. We're trying to learn to hold our views and our opinions more loosely. And with practice, we learn to lessen the clinging to perceptions, thoughts, and emotions, so that we can see more freshly. So that you could say, new information enters. We start to have a healthy skepticism towards our own minds. We update the files that way with this this uh, flexibility and healthy skepticism. One time a yogi came in and said to me, so isn't this retreat a different retreat? A yogi came in and said, um, she was talking about these triggers that she had in this long train of thoughts and emotions that followed up. And then at the end of this long train of thoughts and emotions, she, she had this thought, you made that up. And suddenly she was free from her attachment to her opinions, and she found that fresh information could enter. It was a big moment for her. It was like, you made that up. And um, we can see this often that we, we make up so much and we start to be able to try to hold it with flexibility and space. So, this is a way that mindfulness supports us so that wisdom can enter. I say any time that we have some rigidity around our views, it's, it's good to check it out whether there's delusion there. Delusion to me manifests often as rigidity. A number of years ago when I was 20, I spent a summer um, working with the uh, Mexican Friends Service Committee, or um, the Quakers. And I was with this international group of volunteers at, in a small village in Oaxaca in Mexico. And um, at the end of the summer, uh, somebody from the kind of coordinating team would sit down with each one of the volunteers and just give us feedback about how we were in community um, just for our own growth. So somebody sat down with me, and the feedback I got was that I was a rather opinionated young woman. (laughs) And... um, this man said to me, I mean, it was really, it was, it was excellent because I still remember it, right? That was almost 40 years ago. <laughs> and um, so he says, you know, yeah, you're, 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 you're pretty opinionated and, and you, you, you hang on to your opinions um, pretty strongly. He said, you should just check that out because the more that you're hanging on to an opinion, actually the more insecure you're feeling. So when we hang on with opinions, we think we're sure. And he's saying, "Uh, check it out. And um, I did start to check it out. And he was absolutely right. (laughs) Like that rigidity, that rigidity of attachment to my opinions was actually um, the key to the fact that, that there was delusion there. I'm still pretty opinionated, but I hold my opinions more lightly. I'm still working on it, to be honest. (laughs) But uh, it's much better than it was. (laughs) In fact, I really enjoy these days saying I don't know. It's um, like I'll find myself kind of uh, spouting some opinions about stuff, and, and then I'll stop and I'll go, you know what? I really don't know. And it's such a relief. It's like, you know what? I don't actually have to have an opinion about that. Great. (laughs) Another um, way that the, um, that delusion manifests is when the hindrances are present. So all of the hindrances always co-arise with delusion. So if a hindrance is present, suspect delusion is also present. And of course, the most, um, the most delusion is when we're not aware of the hindrance. When we have awareness, then there's some space there, right? But when we're not aware of it, um, there's delusion, and which means they distort reality. So when greed and aversion or desire and aversion are present, for example, there's always delusion. You can just count on that. They distort reality, this perceptual distortion I was talking about. So, for example, when desire or greed is present, um, the delusion is something like, if I get this, I'll be happy forever. <laughs> or, if it's, or, or this is never going to end. This is permanent. It's going to last. Or if... Um, aversion is present is like if i get rid of that annoying sound then i'm gonna be okay that'll do it of course there'll be another annoying sound but but the delusion is like if i can just get like some the unpleasantness to be at bay and keep it away then i'm then i'm gonna be happy desires like if i can just get enough pleasant lined up you know pretty consistently then i'm gonna be happy delusion <laughs> There's a Mara story related to um, desire and delusion. I love these kinds of stories. So it's um, at Savati. Then early in the morning, the nun Alavika put on her robes and taking her bowl and outer robe, went into Savati for alms. When she had gone for alms, she returned and after her meal went to the grove to spend the day sat at a foot of a tree for the days abiding. Then Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear, horripilation, and terror in her. I also don't know what horripilation is, by the way. But I like the word. It sounds good, doesn't it? Wanting to arouse fear, horripilation, and terror in her, wanting to make her fall away from seclusion, approached her and addressed her in verse. There's no escape in the world, so why? what are you trying to do with solitude? Enjoy sensual delights. Don't be someone who later regrets. Mara's probably spoken to a few of you at times, too. <laughs> so basically, what are you doing on retreat? Like, you should be out having fun. Then the thought occurred to Alavika the nun. Now, who has recited this verse? Then it occurred to her, this is Mara, the evil one, who has recited this verse, wanting to arouse horror, horripilation, fear, and terror in me, wanting me to fall away from seclusion. So she addressed him in verse, There is an escape in the world well touched by me with discernment, with wisdom, something that you, kinsmen of the heedless, don't know. Then Mara, the evil one, sad and dejected at realizing, Alawika, the nun knows me, vanished right there. I know you, Mara. It's a powerful line in the um, many of these sutras. I know you, Mara. And often Mara goes off in the corner and says, And Mara went off, sad and dejected, scratched in the dirt in the corner. And so yeah, So he's been defeated in Dharma combat, you could say. <laughs> So he tries to sneak in with helpful suggestions, (laughs) delusion, and seeing him is the key, or seeing it, them, (laughs) is the key. So the hindrances, um, you can have a good guess that the hindrances are present. If the hindrances are present, delusion is present. So, it can help us to have like a healthy skepticism when our mind is caught in a hindrance. You could say when the mind is under the influence of a of a hindrance, maybe you should just have a policy to not believe it. I do this around um, sleepiness or or sloth and torpor, so i 'm a morning person, nighttime is not my strong point. And so I just have a standing rule that I will not believe what my mind says after 8 p.m. <laughs> it's really convenient <laughs> because it will come up with all kinds of delusion. I just know that, and I won't have the energy. So I'll make a deal, sometimes say, look, we can think about that tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> when, when, I, when I, you know, I, I have more energy. Out of course is um, really tangles us up. It tangles us up in so much mental proliferation and so much speculation. We don't have a chance to see. And then another way that delusion is. Per- in the world is by, um, and I kind of touched on this a little bit, it's by living in the conceptual world. So when we live in um, the conceptual world in our ideas about things, um, you could say that the conceptual world freezes reality and mindfulness unfreezes it. So for example, we have a pain in the knee. In the conceptual realm, it's a pain in the knee and it looks pretty much you know, permanent or not not changing. It's just, it looks solid. We've frozen it with the concept, pain in the knee. But when we get close with mindfulness, we start to see that what we call a pain in the knee is actually a changing experience. It, the pain maybe waxes and wanes and it moves and maybe it's one way in one part of the knee and another way, you know, maybe it's stinging here and stabbing there, um, and and it's 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 not uh it's not solid. you could say it goes from being a noun to a verb mindfulness like conceptualizing to to mindfulness is like going from nouns to verbs. We start to see that everything is a verb fast verb, slow verb. we get in touch with the Nietzsche. And so every moment of mindfulness, like these moments of mindfulness, they like put uh, pinholes in the veil of delusion, you could say. They, they help us start to see through kind of the habitual patterns of the mind, the habitual assumptions of the mind, the, the frozen concepts of the mind. Every moment of mindfulness helps us start to see through, to see what is really true about life. And from that clear seeing of what's true, wisdom develops right here within our own heart, body, mind. Don't need somebody else to give it to us. Wisdom, the opposite of delusion, it develops through this mindfulness and investigation and intimacy with experience, which is basically what we've been doing here all this time. So meditation gives us a chance to um, clear up perception and to move more closely to things to see them as they truly are. And again, what we're, what we're seeing is a Nichanatha dukkha. Change, which we talk about in almost every talk, is the fundamental truth of this world. Aging. Aging is in the change category, right? <laughs> And so if we live um, a little bit pulled back, it's like we can ignore the truth of change. If we live disconnected, we can ignore the truth of change. But when we start lining up those moments of mindfulness, especially when they um, come closer and closer together, what we're going to see is change and more change and change. And then from that we start to see that things are not reliable for permanent happiness. We start to see that what we call ourselves is this changing process, a verb, that what we call ourselves is a verb. It's not a noun. It's not something that we can actually peg down. So th- this is all wisdom. This is the development of wisdom right here with what, our own heart, body, mind. It's said that these three characteristics are the doorways to um, enlightenment, and that we choose one at the moment of enlightenment that we penetrate deeply. Here's the veil of delusion. So, I want to clarify a little bit, um, when talking about the, the, you could say them, these absolute truths about the nature of life, Nietzsche, Nata Dukkha. Um, that there are, you could say, sometimes we talk about two truths or um, uh, the conventional level of reality and the absolute level of reality. So, the conventional level of reality doesn't go away. So, yes, there is some, <laughs> Permanence on the relative conventional level. And yes, things give us some gratification on the relative level. And yes, you are a functioning self and you will continue to be a functioning self um, on the relative level. So it's not like we're trying to get rid of that. But what happens is that when we have a deeper understanding of the absolute level of reality, you could say this kind of a Nietzsche Nataduka reality level, um, we bring that understanding into how we play with relative reality. So, how we sing and dance and play in relative reality becomes infused with deeper wisdom and deeper understanding. And it's a lot more fun that way. <laughs> and the highest realization is when we can hold both of these together and use them as appropriate now here we keep emphasizing this more absolute level of reality because mostly we live in the conventional level and this is a unique opportunity with the silence and the mindfulness to 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 deepen our understanding and our wisdom around this more absolute level I know there are times in my practice when I would kind of be like deep in the, these more absolute truths, and, and it would be a little bit like more than my mind wanted at the time. Sometimes we get like a little bit more than we, we can handle of the truth. And um, my teacher was so helpful around this. She's like, you can take refuge in relative reality. So I remember this specifically one time when I was sitting in the lunchroom here, and um, 1994. It was 1994, <laughs> and uh, and I was I was you know kind of deep into meditation, and um, all of a sudden the people who are walking by in the lunchroom they weren't there. It was like just empty phenomena just moving through the lunchroom, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was also going through a whole lot of, like, really heavy stuff um, on the uh, on emotional level. I was like, I can't do this. And um, so I, I, I had this bowl of um, cornmeal, so I'm like, it's 1994. I'm taking a bite of cornmeal. I'm putting it. This is cornmeal. I'm chewing it. Like, I really grounded myself in relative reality, and it was like it worked. It was like, okay stabilized a little bit. So it's like I would do that sometimes in my practice when it was like I was too out there, I'd be like, oh, OK. Stabilize in relative reality. <laughs> so it doesn't go away. Relative reality doesn't go away. And yet we had this opportunity to see more deeply. So mindfulness makes it all possible. Mindfulness, investigation, open-mindedness, curiosity, very helpful, beginner's mind. One time my um, partner, I was uh, telling me about the time he took a group of uh, students to this glass blower uh, the workshop of a glass blower out in western mass where we live and um, he was talking to the students and um, he was going you know he was teaching them like they were beginner glass blowers you know and he was teaching them how to do it and um, he said something that my um, partner uh, told me about, which I really loved. I think it really applies to meditation. He said that the um, teacher, the blacksmith, or not the blacksmith, the glassblower, said, I want you to slow down and savor being a beginner. As an artist, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I spend most of my time trying to get back to seeing that glass as a beginner. That's what we're trying to do in meditation is (laughs) see it all as beginners with that kind of freshness and that um, openness. This is what we, um, we try to bring in with this quality of curiosity and of investigation. I feel like, um, so, so, so as I was saying, the trick with delusion is we don't know that we're deluded. Um, so how do we see delusion? Because we don't know that we're deluded. <laughs> I feel like we can start to see, or I notice that we can start to see, like, it has a certain scent to it. And it's a scent, like, of rigidity or dullness. And so being on the lookout when we see, like, rigidity in the mind or dullness in the mind, like, good time to look and see. When there's rigidity, it's like actually questioning the mind or questioning what we're believing. It's usually up to no good when there's rigidity. Question everything, basically. So one thing that also helps with this deeper seeing and the development of wisdom is uh, relaxation. So anytime we have an agenda about how we want things to be, so anytime we're trying to control our experience, we aren't actually seeing it as it is. Right there, there's a distortion, right? Usually some kind of grasping our version is distorting reality. So relaxation, this really settling into our experience as it is, is where we're going to start seeing most deeply. This is one of my favorite quotes. It's by Ajay Shanti. The role of spiritual practice is basically to exhaust the seeker. If the practice does what it's supposed to do, it exhausts our energy for seeking, and then reality has a chance to present itself. (laughs) So right, we try, we're seeking, seeking, trying to figure out how we can make things be the way we want them to be. And then finally, we kind of get exhausted with that, and we start to relax into the way things are. But It's not so easy to relax, right? We say, relax. (laughs) it's kind of vulnerable to relax we're not it's not so easy because we don't trust that we can deal with what comes our way I remember I studied Qigong for I don't know seven or eight years now and um, the first class I still remember the first class we were trying to learn how to stand And um, one of the first instructions was, relax the back of your knees. So I tried to relax the back of my knees. And this voice inside said, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) That is not a good idea. (laughs) It was like all the alert systems in the body went off like, ah. (laughs) And I actually quit. I kept studying because I was so curious about that. I found that so interesting. Relax the back of your knees. <laughs> we'd rather manage what's coming our way than relax. You know, at one level. On <laughs> another level, we'd rather relax. But, but there's this kind of back and forth, right, between relaxation and control and when we talk about you know connecting with the body and relaxing um just we have to be really careful that we don't make it a project right because if we're if we're trying to relax and that becomes our agenda then we're not going to see things as they are because the the effort to make things be a certain way will distort So we can suggest it, and then we have to just see what happens. And that's what I kept doing with Qigong. I'd suggest to the back of my knees that they would relax and then see what happens. And as our confidence grows that we can deal with the way life is, then we um, relax more and more. i'd say that meditation is a is a process of deeper and deeper and deeper true relaxation and it grows at the speed that we trust ourselves trust ourselves with reality There's a great book called Eyes Wide Opening, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path by Marianne Kaplan. She says, Rather than placing all of our attention on trying to know everything, which is often a defense against the frightening vulnerability of our human condition, let us strive to not know, and let the barriers erected by our spiritual arrogance and superiority be worn down until we can become permeable to the wisdom of life itself." That's what we're trying to do, become permeable to the wisdom of life itself. One place that I've learned so much about delusion, which I referred to this morning briefly, was um, in anti-racism work. So here at IMS, for about 10 years, we've been engaged very actively in um, anti-racism work. And a big part of that is training ourselves um, in how racism works in our own conditioning. And what I've loved about that work is that it blows my mind. (laughs) So I start to see... um, that I started to see that I don't know what I don't know. So I started to see delusion. And I found that quite fascinating to um, to see that, to see that I didn't know what I didn't know. And very mind-opening. And it really helped me to start to, like, question a lot of things and question uh, and be curious about a lot of things that I think I know about. And, like, do I really know? Very mind opening experience. I like anything that stretches my mind, basically, anything that kind of takes it out of its usual frameworks. For example, I love reading about astronomy. Just great for blowing the mind <laughs> wide open. Or, or, you know, this is um, not an uncommon thing, but sitting, especially when I go wilderness camping, just sitting and looking at the stars. We can see the Milky Way, and there's this rock by the side of the lake, and just sitting and looking up and, like, trying to grok how far away those stars are. It's like, you can't do it, right? You have to give up. It's like, so trying to like let the mind open so wide that it could kind of grok that. I think all of these kinds of things are great for stretching our capacity for not knowing and for um, questioning what we know. So with practice, we get uh, stronger in being with reality. We, we keep coming back to here and now, life, the truth, as it's manifesting here. And we increase, you could say, we increase our capacity to be present in reality. We increase our um, capacity for equanimity and for strength in this wild world that we live in. So you could say that meditation is increasing our capacity for the truth. So this great process of purification is one where we see the layers of misperception, the layers of misinterpretation and delusion that we've put on reality. And then we discover what's true and real underneath those layers. Mariana Kaplan says What is brighter, more essential, and more true can shine forth when we break down the illusions we have overlaid onto reality. In seeing, there exists a possibility to take far greater responsibility for our lives to open ourselves to more understanding, more heartbreak, more challenge, more expansion, also to serve humanity in progressively deeper ways. Since it's late, I think I want to end with a story. It's about not knowing. And it's from Sharon Salzberg's book, Faith. For my 40th birthday, my friend Carol gave me a small picture book. In the center of its vivid red cover were the one-word title, Zoom, and the author's name, I Banyai. Curious, I opened the book and on the first page saw an abstract image of something red and pointy. The next page showed a colorful rooster whose comb was the image I'd just seen. This is a book with no words about it, no words in it, about a rooster, I mused. How very peculiar to receive this as a gift when I'm turning forty, not four. <laughs> Carol, some of you will recognize the name. <laughs> Carol smiled, urging me to go on. I turned the page and saw a picture of children looking through the window of a house at a rooster. Oh, I thought, it's not a book about a rooster, it's about some children who live on a farm. As I turned more pages, the children in the house diminished in size until they proved to be pieces of a toy village being arranged by a little girl. Oh, now I understand, I thought. It's a book about a child, and she is a central figure in this story. The other figures were her toys. A page later, the girl playing with the houses turned out to be part of an illustration on the cover of a book being held by a boy. And so on it went. As I turned the pages, I came to conclusion after conclusion about what the book was really about. Okay, now I get it. This is a story about a boy who is on an ocean liner holding a book with a cover picturing a child playing with a miniature village. (laughs) But when the entire ocean liner turned out to be part of a billboard posted on the side of a bus, my confidence in my interpretations collapsed. The bus proved to be part of a scene on a TV screen being watched by a cowboy in the desert, which turned out to be the illustration on a postage stamp, which was on the postcard of a group of people standing on an island beach. Before I could try to reach another conclusion about the subject of this book, a turn of the page showed the island as seen by a pilot in a small plane. Several pages later, through swirls of cloud, I saw the earth, a jewel-like globe floating in infinite space, then simply a distant white dot. Open to an immensity of perspective, my vision included every image in an expansive sweep of vision, but was not limited by any one of them. I looked up at Carol and said, I feel like God. (laughs) (laughs) So don't close down on wisdom. (laughs) Keep the mind open and let our vision uh, continue to expand. Lastly, if I can find it. Rumi, the famous Sufi mystic, is said to have written, Now I shall be silent, and let the silence divide that which is true from that which is false.